Today we have Hillel Fult. This is a man who over the course of the last couple of months has had over a half a billion impressions, okay? He really is a, a one-man show, a fascinating person who together with his family made Aliyah, a leadership family in American Jewry, and he actually has given up his technology business and has been focused on Israel advocacy and communicating what's happening, the real story of what's happening in Israel to the Anglo world. And we're gonna have a chance to hear from Hillel, to hear a lot about who he's speaking to, the feedback he's getting. And Hillel, please share with us about yourself, your background, and, and really give, give us, this, this group, group of listeners, listeners and participants an insight into the world that you're living in and who you're engaging. Sure. Thank you for having me. This is an incredible opportunity. I've been a big fan of your work for a long time, and I know that uh, the IDF and the state of Israel and the Jewish people appreciate everything that you're doing. So just keep doing what you're doing. That's first of all. Um, as far as me, I'm uh, I'm from New York, as you mentioned. Grew up there. Moved to Israel 30 years ago with my family. Um, you know, back then Israel was not what it is today. Back then you couldn't get deodorant in Israel. You couldn't buy tuna fish, right? It was like a, it was it was basically a third world country. And I came here, you know, as a hardcore Zionist, a word that has since been you know, turned into a dirty word today, but, uh, you know, proud Zionist here. Uh, and so I, I came here 30 years ago and, you know, went through high school and, and went to the army. I was in uh, artillery in the army. Uh, then I studied political science. And basically after I finished my degree, I kind of didn't know exactly how I was going to get to my Northern star, which was always technology, uh, but I'm not an engineer and I didn't really know the vehicle to get there. Uh, I found myself writing user guides for a tech company, literally writing user guides for AT&T and Verizon, um, which, as you can imagine, is not a an optimal career choice for someone with ADHD like myself. Uh, and so pretty quickly, I got pretty bored. And I started what we call today blogging. At the time, I was writing on the internet. I didn't call it that. And I sure did not have a business model. Uh, but really quickly, entrepreneurs started to reach out and I'd meet them. And you know, I basically created this very strange career of just a guy who loves tech and i get to work with you know some of the most fascinating people i very strongly felt like i was a kid in a candy store uh so i worked with you know with startups i worked with google and oracle and microsoft and some of the bigger ones um and i write for basically every leading tech publication uh in the world and you know i, I got a, a very i would say unique perspective on this this thing that we call startup nation um because again i wear several different hats so I would meet, you know, on a daily basis, a marathon of meetings with Israeli startups and many of the startups that you are all familiar with that are now big companies, I really met, you know, when, when it was an idea. Um, and so, you know, my career was a was a dream come true, really. And, and, and beyond my career, I feel like living in Israel now is not what it used to be. It's paradise. I mean, we're, you know, I wake up every morning and I feel like, how is this my life? And I feel very blessed. Uh, I live in Beit Shemesh, the town in between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. I have five beautiful kids, amazing wife. Uh, amazing family. My parents, as you mentioned, uh, were leaders in in Jewish education uh, world in the United States. They moved here. They live in the German colony in Jerusalem, and really just dream, living the dream. Until about five and a half years ago, and my uh, older brother Ari Fold was shopping for his family uh, the day before Yom Kippur, and a sixteen-year-old Palestinian kid stabbed him in the main artery in his neck. Uh, at which point, Ari was medically dead. Uh, and somehow, miraculously, he ran after the terrorist, jumped over a wall, and when the terrorist is inches away from his next victim, a nice lady named Hila, who had given the terrorist a falafel a few minutes before, she obviously didn't know he was a terrorist, she had a falafel stand, and he was going after her, and Ari shot him inches away from her, and she has since become a, a member of the Fold family, but Ari, unfortunately, uh, you know, died, um, and he has since become a national hero of the state of Israel because of the fact that he saved someone's life in his last breath. 
Um, and so that was obviously a very traumatic experience and something, you know, as an American family, we never imagined we would ever have to cope with. We were thrown into the, the club that no one wants to be a part of. Um, and, you know, the stories of Ari's legacy are unbelievable, really. He managed to impact millions and millions of lives in his short life. Uh, and, you know, that's a lesson that he taught me and many other people. And he also taught me that Israel is is worth fighting for. And he fought for Israel around the clock. Um, and so October 7th, um, you know, I was in I was in synagogue like everyone, and I didn't have my phone on me. And the rumors started to circulate, and the kids started to get called up. You know, when I say kids, I mean the eighteen year old kids in the neighborhood. They're kids we started to get called up, and we knew something was was bad. Now, as a as a person who lost someone, a loved you know a loved one to terror, unfortunately, terrorist attacks you know trigger me badly. Uh, and you know that's that's in general. But when this was going on, I was you know I was having a I was pretty pretty much a panic attack and. You know, everyone was trying to calm me down for some strange reason. I don't know where this number came from, but when everyone was saying to be calm down, it'll be okay. I was like, what happens if I come back from the holiday and turn on my phone and there are 75 dead Israelis? I don't know where that number came from. That was like the far, my brain could not fathom. You know, 75 was like the craziest my brain would imagine. Uh, and we know the rest, obviously. And then really without making any declarations or announcements, I just shut down my business immediately, fired all my clients. Uh, and I just jumped in and I, I very strongly feel like everything I've done till today has brought me to this point. Uh, and I, and I feel that I'm channeling Ari on a daily, on, a, on an hourly, on a, on a minutely basis. Um, and I, I, you know, the, the way I view my mission, uh, is very specific. So anything that's outside of this mission, I decline, even if it's something important, fundraisers and things like that, you know, I, I'm focused on my mission and my mission is as follows. Uh, the first part is fighting misinformation, but not just fighting misinformation like many people do. I focus on providing real-time accurate information, which those two things are generally mutually exclusive because if it's real-time, then you have no way to verify it. And if it's accurate, then it takes time to verify. I'm focused on cross-referencing every piece of information that I get, whether it's from the IDF, whether it's from the government, whether it's from 50 other channels. Um, and I'm very careful of what I share, but I'm also very careful to share it in real time. So for example, uh, the hospital story, uh, I tweeted you know, a half an hour before anyone even knew about the hospital that I said, heads up, you're about to hear about a hospital being bombed. You're going to be told it was the IDF. It was not the IDF. And that tweet got millions of views. So by the time the propaganda machine kicked into, you know, high gear and everyone was being told it was Israel, those millions of people who heard, who read my tweet knew that it was propaganda, which, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's impact. And so I'm very focused on real-time information that's accurate. That's part one of my mission. Part two of my mission is is our group is providing hope and optimism and, and and good news. You know, whenever it whenever there's a lot of you know we're all we're all devastated, we're all in mourning, but there's a lot of amazing, beautiful things happening. And so, you know, I'm very strongly focused on 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 raising spirits. And I want to share with you something that I heard recently from a rabbi that really strongly resonated with me. It's a beautiful thought. Um, you know, when when uh, in, the, in the portion, the Torah portion of Lech Lecha, when God says to Abraham, "Leave your hometown." and go to this strange country that's called Canaan, which is obviously the land of Israel, he says these four words to him that as a person who grew up religious, I, I learned these words thousands of times, and I never thought about him till recently. And this is this is what this rabbi from Boca Raton, uh, from Goldberg said, and I think it is unbelievably accurate and beautiful. He said, God says to Abraham, those who bless you, Abraham, those who stand in your corner will be blessed. Those who curse you, aor. Right, I'll curse them. Now, if you if you, you don't have to be a, an English teacher, a grammar teacher, to understand that there's a lack of parallel here. It says it's the same root of bracha of blessing. 
those who bless you will be blessed. Umekalelcha, those who curse you, it should have just said, Akalel, I will curse. The same word, but it doesn't. It changes words to Aor. Aor also means I'll curse. But why does it switch language? So Rabbi, Rabbi Goldberg said, because the word Aor has a different word in it, or light. And he said, this is the way to read that, that portion. It's those who stand in your corner will be blessed. Those who bless the Jewish people will be blessed. Those who curse you, those who get in your face, in your way, they'll see your light. They'll see your unity. They'll see your charity. They'll see the FIDF. They'll see the unbelievable initiatives that are happening around the world to support our nation in this hard time. To me, that really summed it up. They bring darkness, we bring light. It's really as simple as that. And so I'm, you know, I'm basically fighting this fight all day, every day. Um, you know, I, I've done something in the war that I've never done before, which is I, I now cannot read the replies that I get to my tweets. So I always would engage everyone. And Ari, my late brother, always engaged everyone. That was as part of his kind of philosophy, always, always engage, uh, which is something I always did. But the volume that I'm dealing with has become completely impossible to manage. And, you know, the way I see it, I mean, there are three groups. This is the way I categorize the internet. There are three groups. There's our group, meaning the pro-Israel. We don't, we don't need convincing, but we do need strengthening. We do need reinforcement. We do need ammunition in terms of the facts and the ability to answer questions. We need that. Then there's the third group, which is the people that I sadly have to write off because they're the coming at me with, you know, pictures of my dead brother and his kids with fire coming out of them and calling Hitler and, you know, people that I, I can't engage with because they just, they're not with me on this, on the same plane. But then there's the majority. And I think it's a by far the majority, which is the middle group. It's the group of people that aren't necessarily pro-Israel, but they have integrity. They're willing to listen. They're willing to hear. They're willing to be convinced. And so those are the people that, as far as I'm concerned, are my target audience. And, you know, the the response has been absolutely incredible. I'm getting hundreds, sometimes thousands of messages a day telling me, I simply did not know that that's what Zionism was. I literally, I, I wrote a, a pretty long tweet about Zionism, but in a factual way, no, no opinions, no politics, just what is Zionism? And I got messages from people, not one and not two, saying to me, I simply did not know. I, I thought Zionism was racism. I didn't know any of this. And so, you know, it, it's a very strong focus of mine to, to target those people that are willing to hear you. Um, but I'm not going to pretend that the hate that I'm getting is, you know, I, I like to say I have thick skin, but after all these years on the internet, it still gets to me. I got to be honest. Um, you know, yesterday, just yesterday, it's a, it's a wild thing that happened to me yesterday. I met with someone, shall remain unnamed, you can, you can go look it up, but I met with someone and, and, um, we took a picture. We were in the Sheraton in Tel Aviv. We took a picture at the end of our meeting in front of the beach. It was a beautiful picture. And I posted it on X on Twitter. And uh, some anti-Semite took our picture, photoshopped us out of the picture, and put us in a background of Gaza. So behind us, you see destruction of Gaza and you know people buried under the destruction and me and my friend smiling with a selfie. And they posted it. And it got, I mean, this person has a million followers. It got I, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of engagements of people saying these disgusting Zionists, how could he stand there smiling in front of Gaza like that? And, you know, we reported it to Twitter. Twitter said, oh, there's nothing wrong with it because it's clearly parody. It's clearly not. And I'm like, but look at the comments. This is not, no one knows this isn't real. Well, Twitter didn't take it down. And um, someone, you know, put a community note on it saying this is this is misleading and Twitter removed the community note. So I'm dealing with this every day. You know, the anti-Semitism is staggering. It's staggering to see you know, the same blood libels, the same tropes. It's just unbelievable, really unbelievable. You know, when we say never again, we didn't, as far as I'm concerned, we didn't only need never again concentration camps. 
we met never again the level of anti-Semitism. And here we are, right? And, you know, it's it's a scary thing because, you know, the, the transition from dangerous rhetoric to the extermination of Jews in Europe took years. Here it took a month, two months. And it's it's pretty scary stuff. But I do think that, you know, as a nation, the Jewish nation, we have this tendency to not see what's right in front of our eyes. Uh, you know, all the way back to the Bible in ancient Egypt, when we talk about the 10 plagues, which is this week's Torah portion, what people don't, many people don't know is that even after those 10 plagues, even after God literally said, get out of here, 80% of the Jews stayed back. 80%, only one fifth left Egypt. How could that be? Because they said, this is, I'm, I'm Egyptian. I was born here. Leave me alone as land of milk and honey. I'm staying here. We, we tend to not see things that are in front of our eyes. And especially when we're in it, you know, when we talk about the different holidays that we, we, we celebrate, Purim and Hanukkah and all of these things, and we, we, we celebrate, we, but we don't really think what the story was there. I mean, Purim was the near genocide of the Jewish people. And if you had told me in the time of Purim that one day I'm going to celebrate Purim, I would have said to you, you're insensitive. How could you even say such a thing? We're, we're suffering. And Hanukkah, we weren't supposed to win that war. And Passover, we were ancient Egypt, the strongest empire in the world. We brought them to their knees, but we were enslaved and persecuted for 210 years. So when you're in it, it's very hard to see. And that's true for our current situation. We're in it and we're all suffering and we're all mourning, we're all sad. But if we do take a step back, and it's hard to do, it's hard to do. And again, it, it, it might even be perceived as insensitive, but for our own sanity, we have to take a step back and look at how did this, this, all of this fits into history? And, you know, I would never, God forbid, say that God did, you know, October 7th. You know, I don't understand God's ways, but I, but I am going to say that every single time I hear about a rocket landing in an empty space, I ask myself, where are these empty spaces? Like, this is a country smaller than New Jersey. Where are these empty spaces? And so from my perspective, the fact that they've fired, you know, 20,000, 30,000 rockets since, you know, the last couple of years into Israel, and we have, you know, single digit casualties, it, to me, it's like, that is that is pretty miraculous stuff. And, and even, even the Iron Dome, right? I mean, we talk about the Iron Dome. Yeah, okay, no problem. Just detonate rockets in the air, 95% precision, as if that's normal. Right? These, are, these are unbelievable things. And, you know, I'm sure maybe, you know, I don't know if, if you know Daniel Gold, who invented the Iron Dome, but he told me the story. He came up with this idea, and everyone told him it's impossible. The military told him it's impossible. The government told him you can't detonate a rocket in midair. It's impossible. And here we are. And these are these are unbelievable things. And so I, I, you know, my message, I think that, I, you know, I tell myself all day, every day, and I have to, because it's hard. It's really hard to look at this, you know, not through a, a human lens, because if we look at this through a human lens, you know, we'll lose our mind. I mean, none of this makes any sense. How could it be that people deny October 7th when there's HD footage of it? How could that be? On October 8th, I said to myself, you know, the silver lining here is at least the world's going to stand with us finally. There's no way the world's not going to stand with us after this. And here we are. So, you know, my message is pretty clear, and I tell this to myself, and I'm telling it to you, and that is that, you know, again, Purim and Hanukkah and all of them, uh, you know, they were they were very close to tragedy, and we celebrate them today, and I am telling you that we will win this war, Hamas will be no more, we will always remember, you know, that horrible day, we're never going to forget it, but we will dance again. Simchas Torah, the holiday on which this happened, is going to be the happiest day of the year again. We will grab and hold our Torah scrolls tighter than ever before, and we will dance again, just like we do on Purim and just like we do on Hanukkah. It is going to take some time. We're going to have to win this war. It's going to take patience. But from a person who just opens history books, just open history books. The script is already written. It happens every single time. You know, and I would say that, 
you know, I don't think, God forbid, I wouldn't even imply that there's going to be concentration camps in, you know, 2024 in the United States or anywhere else. That's not going to happen. But, you know, things are getting pretty bad pretty fast. And I would say that really, you know, as we say, never again is happening. There's only one difference. And the difference is LL.com, right? We have Israel uh, and we're here always. And we're here thanks to you, really. So, you know, that is really my message. My message is this is this is one of the darkest times in our history. We're all suffering you know, sometimes I can't get out of bed. You know, and the other day when we lost those soldiers, I unfortunately, because I have access to, to you know, to intel information from different sources, I knew about it, you know, 20, 15 hours before it was released. And I couldn't sleep. I I, I couldn't, I didn't even know what to do with myself. So, you know, I'm not pretending, you know, or implying that, oh, you know, we're going to win this and everything's great. No, it's it's hard. It's very, very hard, especially, you know, I'm not comparing myself to the soldiers on the front lines, but I'm on the front lines of the digital war, and it's pretty bad. I'm in the mud all day long. I'm, in, you know, I'm in it, deep in it, and it's hard. Um, but you know, it's clear to me that my mission is an important one. It's clear to me that people depend on me, and I and I think that you know, if I'm just going to kind of leave you with one practical piece of advice, you know, there's a very common misconception that people say to me all the time, which is that. I, you know, I don't have a lot of followers. Well, what's the point of me posting on Facebook? I'm just talking to my echo chamber, right? Everyone's heard that, my echo chamber. Well, I, I'm here to tell you that that's not how social media works. Because if you have two followers and you post something on your Facebook that's impactful and it's written well and it's meaningful, if one of those people shares it, you've just exited your echo chamber because now you access their followers. You have now ex you've exited your... So, you know, I think each and every one of us has, you know, the ability and, you know, I think... We really have the obligation in, in a way to not scroll our social media feeds like like drug addicts. That's what we do. We can't do that. We each have to use, you know, our ability to impact and influence. And again, that's something that Ari taught me. There is no limit to how much impact a person can have. And so, you know, each in our own way, not not saying that everyone needs to be on social media, but we all have to do something. And I know that again, the organization, the FIDF is doing unbelievable things. But as individuals, we also have to make sure to do our part to speak up and you know. It's, it's rough when the entire world has lost their moral compass and there's and moral clarity is a, is a, you know, it's like, wow, that guy said the truth. It's like unbelievable. It's a novelty, you know? So we have, we have again, I think we as, as a people and as a nation, um, you know, not only the Jewish nation, but people that, that still have moral clarity. It's our obligation to speak up. It's our obligation to show that not everyone has lost it. And not everyone is spreading horrible propaganda and heart. There are amazing people in the pro-Israel camp. We're maybe not as loud as the people who are making a lot of noise, but we should be. We should be. And our message should be light. That is our, as far as I'm concerned, our narrative should not be the world hates us and should not be double standard and should not. Our message and our narrative for the world is the world is a very dark place. And that darkness manifests in our social media feeds. It is our job to extinguish that darkness with our light. And that is what we're doing. We're doing now. I hope and pray that we maintain the unity that we're seeing in the, the Jewish people today. It's a unity, as far as I'm concerned, that we haven't seen since Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, the Torah describes that we stood there with one man with one heart, unified, 600,000 men. And 600,000 men stood, 300,000 reservists and 300,000 in Washington, D.C., 600,000 people, unified. So as far as I'm concerned, this is Mount Sinai all over again. And so I'll just leave you with that, with those four words. They're the most important words, and you have to keep telling this to yourself. I have to keep telling it to myself on a daily, on an hourly basis. We will dance again. That's all I got. Hello, thank you.
Thank you for, for sharing that message of optimism. And thank you for communicating really with the Anglo world. You know, you, you're there, as you said, it's a very different front line than soldiers, but it's a front line. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>